Welcome to Wise and Nice, a true crime podcast with your hosts Danny Armstrong and Kelly Lee. Please remember that we mean no disrespect to anyone mentioned in this episode or across any of the Wise and Nice platforms. We have an interest in true crime and related topics, and whilst we may offer our own personal views on certain items, it is meant to be educational and as light-hearted as possible. The information we present is collated from research gathered from the internet, and we reference and credit our sources wherever possible. If you've liked what you've heard and want to join in with us, follow us on our socials, Instagram, Wives and Knives the Pod, Twitter, at Knives Wives, and Facebook, Wives and Knives Pod. We also have a little website where we post photographs and other information about the cases that we research. And this is wivesandknives.wixsite.com forward slash my site. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Wives and Knives. Hello, everybody. Um, this week we are in Australia. Um, yeah. So I'm going to cue my allegedly terrible Australian accent. Apologies in advance. Um, I've never been to Australia, have you? No. No, I have no. I, I would really love to go, to be fair. I would not. Would you not? No. Why? Um, it's a really long flight. Oh, it would okay. cost a lot of money. Um, if you go. could afford it though like if it was if you could fly business class have you seen the size of the animals over there like, it's more the little ones that bother me uh, there's fair. so many things that can kill you yeah I am just for the money it would take to go to somewhere where I might be killed by a small <laughs> animal I could probably go to Greece Spain Italy France very European I am mm. yeah very I European traveller I, I feel like New, um, Australia and New Zealand, I, I just like would really like to visit. I'd be like, obviously I'm probably never gonna be able to afford it, but if I ever get into the situation where I can, mm. I'd love to go for yeah quite a while. I was discussing this very recently oh. with a friend of the show, Liam, because hi, he, Liam. Hi, Liam. he loves um, America and mm. has been there quite a lot and stuff. And it just, doesn't have the same um, lure to me yeah, I guess, as I it does that. to him but I completely get why he loves it mm. and maybe it is a finance thing that I've never really considered it but there's places I'd much rather go that are like Italy and mm. it's just yeah it's just interesting isn't it how some people yeah. are drawn to certain places definitely um well, yeah, whether you want to go to Australia or not, um, there are some fascinating Australian true crime cases. Um, you covered Kelly Lane, yeah. didn't you? And I did Marty. But I was like thinking, I'm surprised that we haven't done more no, Australian um, cases. What's the one with the backpackers from the UK that went to uh, Australia? I was going to say, I Falconi. did... Yeah, Falconio. Peter Falconio and Joanne Lee. Yeah, I love that case. It's a very good case. It's Bradley Murdoch. Yeah. Yeah, we covered that pre-podcast in Murder Club. I was so thinking then, haven't yeah, we done I did that? that? Yeah, I and really enjoyed that. It is, I would like to definitely cover that at some point because it is a really good... A uh, really good case. We also did Phoebe Hansdruck as well, which is something another Australian case that I would like to cover in the future. Um, but this particular case, this guy, he has been on my baddies to cover list for quite a while, and it was actually one of your Christmas presents that made me think, yeah, crack on and get him done. So Danny got me a baddies and scumbags tea towel for Christmas, in which this person features, and the man in question is Ivan Malat. Indeed. So before we start this episode properly, I would like to take this opportunity to say hi and hello um, to our lovely Australian listeners, in particular Planet Lash Adelaide, who have been following us for quite a long time. So Amazing. Hello. I hope you're okay. Um, I'm also, because it's all about me, <laughs> I'm also going to take this opportunity to say hi and thank you to all the members of the Kath and Kim Appreciation Society on Facebook because they make me chuckle on the daily. 
<laughs> so I absolutely love being a member of that group. Um, have you ever seen Kath and Kim? No. Well, I feel like if you you need to, well, you're a fool, um, but you need to watch it. It's available on Netflix at the moment. It's so so funny. I'm guessing it's Australian. Yes, it is. Okay. It's amazing. Um, okay, enough pleasantries. Um, time to crack on with the case, and it's far far from pleasant to say the least. So, Danny, prior to me mentioning this guy, had you ever heard of Ivan Milat? Yes, I'd heard of him, but I don't know a lot about the case. I'd heard of him primarily because of the tea towel, <laughs> yeah. which I have one as well. I got gifted it as a present and thought it was amazing and then it's worked brilliant. out where they'd got it from and then thought, oh, I'll get Kelly one. And you can get them on eBay if you type in like scumbags and baddies tea towel or like true crime tea towel I think it comes up yeah if you're into your true crime merch this is an excellent present right well if you haven't heard of Ivan Milat then you might know him as the backpack murderer or Ivan the terrible and the film Wolf Creek is loosely based on him have you seen that? no shocker (laughs) (laughs) I think you only know me via this podcast I come across as so uncultured and like sheltered from the world because I've not seen anything and I've just revealed I don't want to go anywhere (laughs) I just I don't have the money to be 13 hour flights and I'm scared of a lot of things that's okay that's fine I think the Australia SE on Home and Away looks banging but I think that's only a small part of it. Yeah, definitely. Hope all our Australian listeners are okay with all the scary <laughs> animals over there. I mean, they're not that scared of them. I think it's just, it's just you get used to it when you're out there. <laughs> okay, well, um, yeah, Wolf Creek, it's um, a horror movie. I thoroughly enjoyed that film. Um, they made it into a series, which not as good, but, you know, decent Aussie acting talent in there. Um, quick tangent when that film actually came out one of my like closest and oldest friends was going uh, was leaving to go travelling in Australia and so for her leaving gift I bought her like a few little bits of things but I actually bought her like a multi-tool because I was like it's as close as a weapon that you can get like I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about customs or anything like that I was just genuinely deeply concerned that she may get murdered out there like I was really worried Anyway, she did make it back, yay, Um, but many don't, and in fact the opening sequence of uh, Wolf Creek states that 30,000 people are reported missing in Australia every year, Uh, 90% of those are found within a month, but many are never seen again, and for seven people, and no doubt many more, it was due to Ivan Malat's. So the majority of this case takes place within the Belanglo State Forest, I love saying that, Belanglo. 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 Yeah, it's a nice word. Yeah, it's a good word. Um, so Belanglo State Forest is three kilometres west of the Hume Highway, and that's between Sydney and Canberra. And it's a planted forest, and it's owned by the New South Wales government. Uh, and it can contain some of the earliest pine plantings, so from 1919 in the oh. state. Yeah, fun fact for you. So... The forest is really popular with like trail bike riders and off-road drivers because it's got like loads of tracks that you can go along and like creek crossings and things like that. It's a really lovely place. Sounds fun. Mm. And it's also popular with like walkers and campers too. Now on the 19th of September 1992, two people who were orienteering in the Belanglo forest discovered a partially decayed body in a rocky alcove. Now it was the body of a young woman and she was lying face down with her arms tied behind her. So they alerted the police who arrived at the scene to investigate and by the following morning the police had discovered a second body approximately 30 metres from the first. Um, The second victim was also a young woman and like the first she was in the same position and the bodies were like partially covered in sticks and ferns which almost formed like a bit of a pyramid over them and what was clear from the very start was that each victim had suffered a horrific death. So one of the victims had multiple stab wounds um, and these were to the chest, the neck and the back and the wounds to the back was so forceful that it severed her spine and this wouldn't have been like a that wouldn't have been the 
the wound that killed her mm-hmm. these were more likely the neck um, the neck wounds that had done that so it implied that this death was incredibly prolonged and a torturous one now the other victim the second victim they'd also been stabbed in the back but they'd been shot 10 times uh, like around the head um apparently being used for target practice oh god so they were like gets worse um campfires dotted around the crime scene too so indicating that the killer had camped at the site restraining his victims so that he could spend time with them during and after proper torch proper yeah and then had stayed there at the scene like so it before and after they'd been killed um yeah it's absolutely horrific to think about so using dental records, the police quickly identified the victims as 22-year-old Caroline Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters, who were two British travelling companions. So Caroline was from Surrey originally, but she'd moved um, to Slaley near Hexham before, which I think is in Northumberland. Yeah, I know exactly you know that. So there you yeah. go. Um, so she'd moved there with her parents just before going travelling and Joanne was from Maystag in Wales um, so the two friends they'd actually met up at a backpackers hostel and they'd been seen well they'd been last seen in April of that year of 1992 hitchhiking outside Wollongong to go and find jobs fruit picking in Victoria so the police immediately start a murder investigation, which includes a thorough search of the forest. And a few weeks after the discovery of the two bodies, the detectives had gathered lots of physical evidence from the crime scene from the forest. So they've got distinctive bullet casings. They had cigarette stubs and like a whiskey bottle that had been found at the scene. But they were no closer to gathering like any real clues as to the identity of the person responsible. So a forensic psychologist called Rod Milton, he'd been working, like, he worked within the force that was in charge of the case. Um, He stepped up to consult and he developed a profile of the killer. And he believed the killer would live on the outskirts of the city in a semi-rural area. He'd be employed in a semi-skilled job, probably spending a lot of time outdoors. He would be involved in an unstable or unsatisfactory relationship with a woman. They'd have a history of aggression against authority and they'd be aged approximately in the mid-30s. So at the same time as like taking the murders very seriously, the police faced a lot of pressure to reassure the public and the world. Like this was international news. So they were but they were also quick to deny the likelihood of more victims being found in the forest, as well as um, the potential, well, there potentially being a serial killer on the loose, which I find quite an interesting move because over the years, there'd been a fair few people go missing in this area and more than a couple of them were backpackers. So, um, like I said, the police taking it seriously and a hotline set up asking people, you know, with any information to come forward, had they seen anything, you know, relating to the two backpackers. Um, and the media absolutely flood all of their outlets with, you know, information um, and about the murders of Joanne and Caroline. In October of 1993, so that's a year later... Yeah. A local man who'd been in a remote section of the Blanglo Forest, um, and make up your own mind to what he was doing there, because in one source he's collecting firewood, and then in another source he's actively trying to help the police. So he's gone into the forest looking for more. Right. So just decide, you know. And there's so many different versions. But whilst he's in this remote section, he actually discovers human remains and he finds a skull and a femur. So he takes the police, like reports it, takes the police to the scene and two more badly decomposed bodies were discovered. And these remains were later identified as being friends Deborah Everest and James Gibson. Now, they're both 19 years old um, and they went missing on Friday the 29th of December. Um, 1989 so a few years before yeah so the friends they were both Australian and they enjoyed backpacking together I read that James in particular enjoyed uh, in inverted commas the hippie lifestyle Um, and they you know they both liked hitchhiking and backpacking together 
but sadly, James and Deborah had too met a terrible fate, much like um, Joanne and Caroline. So James' skeleton was actually found in a fetal position and he'd suffered multiple stab wounds and again, his upper spine had been severed. Deborah had also been stabbed in the back and had been savagely beaten. So her skull was fractured in two places, her jaw was broken and there were knife marks on her forehead. So the police are forced to admit the shocking similarities between Caroline, Joanne, James and Deborah. Yeah, the amount of um, like violence used towards the victim. Absolutely. And those similarities are not just the location of Blanglow Forest. So this is looking more and more like a serial killer. And the police are thinking, are there more victims after all? Yeah. So they start another intensive sweep of the forest. Now, just to give you an idea, this forest is 3,800 hectares or hectares. So it's, you know, it's, it's huge. It's a very large area to cover and mainly on foot if the police wanted to be thorough. Yeah. Know, because it's so covered that you couldn't, you could fly a helicopter over, but it's not going to give you any idea of, you know, different sites yeah you really need to be on the you need to be on the ground in this so a month later on the 1st of november 1993 a skeleton is found in a clearing along a trail in the forest and it's another young woman and there's no doubt that she's fallen victim to the same killer she's got multiple stab wounds to her upper torso and two of those have severed her spine i was gonna say how's the spine not good So the victim is later identified as German tourist Simone Schmidl. Now Simone, or Simi, as she was known, was like a confident and seasoned traveller. And she was last seen hitchhiking south from Liverpool on the 20th of January 1991. Now several items of jewellery and coins were found next to her body, along with clothing that clearly didn't belong to Simi but it likely belonged to another victim. So on the 4th of November, um, so just a few days later, in shallow graves 50 metres apart, two more bodies were found. And this time it's a young man and a woman and their injuries are again similar. So the man's body showed multiple stab wounds, including the now familiar spine severing. And the woman had actually been decapitated, most likely with a machete or a sword. And she would have been alive when that happened. Oh, God. Yeah. So despite extensive searches, her skull um, was never found. The victims were identified as being German couple Gabor Nugebauer and Anya Habsheed. Now, they were last seen on Thursday, the 26th of December, 1991. So that's Boxing Day. And again, leaving a backpack hostel in King's Cross, Sydney, never to be seen alive again. So that's seven victims found in Blanglow Forest. And they're all sharing similar horrifying fates. And I think we probably alluded to this, but there was strong evidence to suggest that the majority of the victims did not die instantly from their injuries and that they've been subjected to deplorable acts and some of which were sexual um there was also a suggestion that the police perhaps shouldn't be looking for just one person yeah that this could be the work of more than one killer because most of the victims had been attacked while they were in pairs yeah so it would have been if it's just one person it would have been two on one yeah so, yeah. so you can see where the thought process is going there. Yeah, or at least one person with like incredible strength, or most or yeah, very good point. Yeah, um, and also the victims had been killed in slightly different ways. So, you know, one had been um, like excessively beaten, stabbed, and the other had been like shot. So different yeah. methods as well, and they'd always be were a bit like buried separately. Um, so it's, a, it's an absolutely huge case. Like the police are really on it. Um, public warnings were made, like by the government. They were particularly aimed at international backpackers. So people were advised not to hitchhike, um, particularly along the Hume Highway. So uh, there was an, a reward for information um, 
well, there was a reward asking for information, any information that would lead to, you know, give the police something to go on. Um, And because, like, obviously time has passed and more victims have been found, they increased that to 500,000 Australian dollars. So they're really eager to get any help that they can with this case. But the police, like, really had to focus their efforts. There was, like, no denying the gravity of these fines. So on the 14th of October of 1993, Task Force Air was officially set up. So there had been a task force that had been working from initially from finding the first two victims of Joanne and Caroline, but now it's like, perhaps for the press, I don't know, but they're saying, here we go, we've got a massive task force, we're going to get this guy. So that task force contained more than 20 detectives, like loads of forensic analysts and psychologists. And in November, a dedicated, like another dedicated information hotline was set up and it immediately started receiving thousands of calls. I think oh, like over um, the course of the whole investigation, I believe they received one million, like one and a half million tips. So... The police faced an enormous volume of data from numerous sources. So as as I've mentioned, there's the hotline, which is information coming in from the public, um, but they also were checking vehicle records, um, gun licensing records, um, as well as police like internal records. So they're looking for somebody who matches the profile, but also has perhaps an interest in guns and things like that. So it seems like a really good in-depth investigation. Definitely. So they, from this, they ended up with a list of suspects, like in the thousands, and they fo- start to focus on narrowing down those suspects um, to, you know, so they have like a smaller list to work from. Now, securing his place on this list quite early on, along with some of his siblings was a local man who had quite a criminal history but what stood out particularly to the police was that he'd previously been arrested in 1971 for kidnapping and rape Uh, and his name was Ivan Malat. So Ivan Robert Marco Malat was born on December the 27th 1944 in Newcastle Australia and he was the fifth of 14 children who grew up in a dirt floored shack in the outer Sydney suburb of Moorbank. Now their mother Margaret was perpetually pregnant so she was a staunch Roman Catholic. No. Right. Yeah. And their father, uh, Stepan, or Stephen Malat, was 18 years her senior. You'd just stop having sex, wouldn't you? Well, you would, yeah. That, that, yeah. (laughs) So the father, um, Stephen, he was 18 years her senior, and he was a very strict patriarch who was uh, extremely violent. So you did anything wrong, you'd absolutely get beaten. Um, Guns and knives were commonplace in the household and all of the children learned to shoot from a young age. Uh, The family worked really hard, but they didn't make a lot of money, so they led quite a frugal life. Um, They lived in a three-bedroomed house. Um, I mentioned that's in Moorbank, that's near Liverpool, which is quite a working-class area at the time. Um, And the children slept in triple-tiered bunk beds. Because there's a lot of children. Yeah. A lot of children. And I believe it was ten, ten boys and four girls. Okay, so, yeah, the thought of having 14 children just makes me physically and mentally shudder. Like you said, I, I just don't understand it. It's just too many thoughts. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you can make a, a football team out of your offspring, like, that's too many, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. I just, I, I don't understand the psychology of having, of why you would want so many children. Just don't yeah. understand it at all. Like, what's that famous family in England? Are they called the Rashfords or something? Yeah, that's that kids. I'm like, how do you... Mm. I mean, okay, good luck to you. You know, I'm not throwing any shade. You clearly, you know, you can afford your children and you yeah. and everything. That's fine. It's up to you. But for me, I'm like, I just don't understand the charm of having a yeah, large... Yeah, I'm like, why? No. 
anyway yeah. I think I, I think I think it's a bit different if it's like foster kids oh, hmm. and stuff like that I think that's a bit different it's just birthing that many children birthing, I think. yeah that terrifying but even fostering that many children at one time I feel like how can you how can you give enough attention to yeah. your children there's not enough of you to go around yeah I wasn't thinking at the same time I was thinking someone who's like you know yeah. fostered and then those children oh, have kind yeah. of grown up and then you That's, foster someone yeah I don't like find that. I find that really admirable yeah I don't so. but what I feel is like that people who have large large families I'm thinking how can you possibly give enough attention to one child I struggle I feel like I've got one child and I'm like how do I split myself so much in every other arena that I have in my life Mm -hmm. to give my child enough attention that they feel loved and you know cared for I don't think you can do that with 14 children yeah I just don't think think I think people's perspectives that have come from large families are different sure because I know people who've come from nothing like that but like they've been one of five or one of six Mm. which to me is a very large family because I'm an only child Um, and then they seem to want large families and it's like a different whereas being an only child I never wanted siblings and I know a lot of only children that did but I never wanted siblings at all and I um, wouldn't want a large family no well like most of his siblings um, Ivan back to Ivan <laughs> Ivan went to the local Patrician Brothers school where he was actually considered quite bright um, his siblings have said that Ivan was the most intelligent of all the siblings but it would seem that he didn't really like school and he actually began skipping classes and acting out so in his early teens, he was transferred to Boys, ta- Boys Town, which is an institution for overburdened families and their wayward sons. So at 15, Ivan left school and he went to work on like the local building sites in the area. And this was something that all the brothers did. It's so, like working on the sites, doing a lot of manual labour. So it's a very, as we've established, a very large family and there are lots of mouths to feed and they could earn fast cash. So why not? Yeah. Um, Now, the family were really well known in the area. And that's not just because of the sheer like volume of them, but because the Malat brothers particularly regularly attracted the attention of the local police force who often visited the family home. So by the time Ivan was 17, he'd been arrested for breaking into a house and stealing. And in 1962, he was actually given six months in a juvenile institution for breaking and entering. So on his release, he would go on to more or less immediately re-offend. And the rest of the 60s for Ivan are pretty much like a revolving door of jail. So he's like always getting busted for doing something and caught for doing something so through the 60s there are four more jail terms um and that they're for things like car theft stealing and more of the breaking and entering in 1969 the family malata family moved to the sydney suburb of guildford and it's a slightly more market area for the family and they quick, they quickly settle in and um, becoming well known. I actually read that the local police force um, had sent the Guildford police a sympathy card when the family moved there. Oh wow! Like, I mean, I think that says it all. So Ivan's still up to his old tricks, however, just in a new venue, and he's committing his usual crimes. However, as he gets older, he's sort of up in the ante and he commits two armed robberies and one of them was at a bank. So sadly, in 1971, so just a few years later, Ivan's brother Wally and younger sister Margaret are involved in a head-on crash near to the family's home. And Ivan's said to be the first one on the scene and he finds Margaret covered in blood and unresponsive and Wally, who'd been driving, also injured but alive. Now, it's said that Ivan cradled his sister at the site, like she's covered in blood and unresponsive and he's holding her and he apparently took it very rough when she died two weeks later, never regaining consciousness. Now, within a month of Ivan's sister's death, Ivan's lover left him and her name was Marilyn and she was one of his brother's wives. Yeah, so Ivan 
is regularly having affairs with his brother's wives okay. by all accounts at this time now not longer after um the death of his sister and marilyn leaving him he's actually charged with raping one of two women that he'd picked up hitchhiking near Liverpool over the Easter weekend. And he'd tied up both women and he'd threatened them with a knife. Now, it would be near this point, 20 years later, that the backpacker victims would start to vanish. So there's a committal hearing to face the charges of rape and also um, armed robbery charges, and that includes the one that I mentioned at the bank. But Ivan jumps bail and he uh, he flees to New Zealand, and it's actually said that he tried to fake his own death there as well to shake off the police. So he leaves his shoes at like a notorious suicide spot and thinks that that's fine, everyone will just assume that he's killed himself. Now, he stays in New Zealand until 1974, and this is when his mum, Margaret, gets sick. And so he decides to return to Australia to visit her in hospital. He's very, very close to his mum, and it seems to me that he's very close to a lot of women. Like, they seem to impact his... Like, his women... The relationships he has with women massively impact events that will come to light later. Yeah, they're the key um, relationships in his life. Absolutely. Um, So, he's at the hospital visiting his mum, and one of his brothers actually calls the police and, as the Australians say, dobbed him in. Amazing. So, at trial... He is shockingly acquitted of the robbery charges because another brother, who had also been involved in the robbery, had actually admitted responsibility for the crime, so it let Ivan get off with it. But what's worse is that he also swerved the rape charge, and apparently this is because one of his victims allegedly changed her story. Now... I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about this because it really annoys me. Because for me, this is one of the worst miscarriages of justice in this case. Like, and it's rarely talked about in detail. So these two young women who Ivan had picked up in 1971 and then later threatened and raped, they'd actually met at a treatment facility and it was a psychiatric facility for homosexuals. So they were basically homosexuality was illegal at this time right. and these two women were being sent for effectively psychiatric conversion therapy oh that's awful so yeah so these two young girls were lesbians they were gay and their names were margaret pierce who went by greta and margaret patterson now at trial ivan malat's defense lawyer john marsden absolutely destroyed them and their case the focus was mainly on their sexuality um, and their behavior rather than what ivan had done to them and it just makes me really angry and what makes me angrier is that in 98 percent of the information out there it doesn't tell you this it literally just says Ivan got away with it because one of the girls changed her story. That's not what happened. And thankfully, I'd like to think it wouldn't happen today. Yeah. But what actually happened was that whilst they were being threatened by Malat, like he basically picked them up, pulled over, pulled a knife on them, and was like, which one of you is going first? It was, it was, you know, it's not, it's horrible. It's terrifying. Absolutely. Now, what had actually happened is one of the girls, whilst being threatened by Malat, had said, if I let you have sex with me, with if I let you have sex with me, will you let us live? And that's basically what happened. He raped her, but then he drove them away. Didn't rape, like he raped both of them. One of the girls had said, like, if we allow you to do this, will you let us live? So he'd said, not yes, but he'd obviously thought, maybe I'll keep them in the car a bit longer and drive them somewhere else. They drove to a service station. They convinced him to let them get a drink. um, And then they, like, alerted other people to what had happened. And he drove off. They were safe. And then they called the police. So basically, he did rape them, whether she asked him to do so to, so he wouldn't stab her to death. So essentially the police are taking that as consent, which is... Yeah, it was more than... Yeah, it's just 
Yeah, it just basically they use that statement to prove that she'd consented to this vile act and it's absolutely disgusting and that's how he got away with it. And like not only were his victims further abused and persecuted by the legal system in Australia, that more than likely heavily contributed to the further deaths of the backpackers. Um, the defence lawyer, Ivan's defence lawyer, like I said, um, a guy called John Marsden, he um, was actually gay himself and he wrote about it in his memoirs just before he passed away and he admitted that it was something that haunted him for like the rest of his life he felt really bad about it and you know it didn't change anything but at least he had a conscience Ivan Malak's free and in 1975 he meets his future wife Karen Duck and Karen was 17 at the time and pregnant to Ivan's cousin Mark and Karen advises how Ivan just claimed her for his own like he just took her off Mark raped her and then she was his like as though she was just like a belonging not a person and Ivan's siblings who do talk um, say that this was like normal for his mentality like if he wanted something he just took it and you know wouldn't hear anything about it and no one would cross him so soon the couple are living together in a caravan in a garden and they're saving a deposit for a house and Karen's son Jason was born and Ivan treated him as if he was his own biological child so during this time so mid-70s onward Ivan's actually working for the Department of Main Roads so he's out in his truck driving up and down the highway doing repair jobs and things like that I find it startling that he could get a job like just his mentality and who he is and everything that he's got a job I think that's it this I mean not to if he's that well known like he's employing him he's like oh yeah well I feel like that's like mentioned before I feel like that's probably one of the only jobs that Ivan could could have done you know I'm not no disrespect yeah that's what I mean no no disrespect to anybody who works on the roads but I feel like um, all they're interested in is someone who just gets gets on and works hard they're not bothered about as long as there's no issues yeah then that's fine and that's pretty much the type of person that Ivan was he was pretty well put together really you know like he always looked quite smart um, and he worked hard. So as long as you didn't have any issues with him, I think he would potentially be a pretty good worker. Um, so yeah, he's working on for the Department of Main Roads at this time, and, and that means that he's actually away for days at a time, which is really good for Karen, because their relationship was very abusive and controlling. So Ivan, as I've just touched on, Ivan was pretty obsessive about his self-image. So that might have been a trait that he picked up from his father, who was also obsessive about cleanliness and order. So despite being quite frugal like his father, Ivan always liked to look smart, well presented, he didn't smoke or drink. And his house, which he finally got with Karen, had to be absolutely clean and ordered. Like, and if it wasn't, then Karen would be mercilessly beaten by him. So, again, much like his father, he still has this obsession with guns and other weapons, and he had quite the collection. But during this time, Ivan is still regularly having affairs during his marriage to Karen, and these, again, are not like random one-night stands either. He's regularly having affairs with his brother's wives. And there's also speculation that he had an incestuous relationship with his sister Shirley, I really do feel for Karen, like it can't have been easy being in a relationship with Ivan Malat. No, you know. not at all. So in 1987, Karen left Ivan, um, and this was on Valentine's Day. And he was away at work, and with the help of her mother, she packed up the house and fled, um, taking like all of her belongings and furniture with her. And now Ivan took this quite badly. So for me it's that his object of control had escaped yeah. and like his world was completely upended but he quickly sought solace with one of his brother's wives Marilyn from before so he's right. like consistently he is in relationships controlling a woman and when he isn't in a relationship he is having extramarital affairs or even when he is in relationship with at least two of his brother's wives so I mean 
for me, it's just like that juxtaposition of Carrick. So on the one hand, he's like, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I'm well presented and I work hard. But then the other side is that like I'm a, a career criminal who regularly shags my sister and my brother's yeah. wives. It's just like really like two personalities in a way. So yeah, um, the following year in February, he actually set fire to Karen's parents' garage, burning it to the ground. And in July, she officially files for divorce. Good. So this brings us to 1989. Now, Milat quit his regular job um, and he took to working under an alias. And this was something that, again, he often did. Like he'd use one of his brother's identities and it was usually Bill Milat. And he'd use that identity to, like, buy guns and, you know, buy new cars and things like that. So this time he was using this um, alias to avoid paying tax and to sort of stop Karen claiming any of his income. Um, anyway, the divorce goes through and by the end of the year, Deborah Everest and James Gibson have gone missing. Right. So why was that's kind of what I'm focusing on the events in his life because it tallies quite closely to what I was saying before when he hasn't got something to control or he's has no object of control yeah there's like a big time of disruption in his life that's when people go missing exactly so that's at the end of the year and then they're followed so Deborah and James are followed by Simone in January of 1991 and then Gabor and Anya in late December of that year and then Caroline and Joanne in April of the next year so 1992 that's 1992 and the bodies are being found in September and the others are found in 1993 as I've covered so that brings us back to the police case and it's bringing our timeline to early 1994 now and as I mentioned the police are working through this massive list of suspects and they're reaching out to the public for information our call is received on the hotline from the girlfriend of one of Malat's work colleagues and she advises the police that they should really consider this man as a potential suspect he drives in the area he regularly carries knives and guns around with him perhaps you know if he wasn't flagged up already perhaps you should be focusing on him now Ivan and his brothers have already been flagged up previously and they are of interest to the police and so they really start to focus on the Malat brothers as a whole because they fit the profile and most, most of them work in labouring jobs which would take them along the Hume Highway regularly. But Ivan is the particular person of interest. He is the only one who doesn't have an alibi for all of the murders, like he wasn't in work those days. Um, and when they dig further, that's when they find in his criminal record the arrests and the charges from 1971 so they hadn't that hadn't flagged up before so they were just they weren't looking at him as somebody who had that extra sort of urge to or evidence that he would kidnap etc so they find this arrest and the charges from 1971 and it's it helps them to bring Ivan like more into the frame But at this time, the police are actually at loggerheads because the man in charge of the case or in charge of the task force is a guy called Mm -hmm. Clive Small. And he, whilst he does think that Ivan is like a suitable suspect, he wants to take it slow and play that the long game to ensure like a solid case for trial. Um, Whereas one of the other detectives, Paul Wilson, he, again, he knows it's Ivan Malat. He just really needs something to, like, some evidence to justify surveillance and searches of him. So they start to look for more solid links to any of the victims, as well as chasing up calls and tips that they've received from the hotline. Now, as part of their investigation, they find that Ivan had asked a friend to fix his car after he'd accidentally discharged a weapon in the passenger seat. Now, the witness confirms that this would have been just a few days after Gabor and Anya had disappeared. And also another call had come in, and this was from a woman called Therese Tran, and she called the hotline advising them of an experience that her and her friend Mary had had back in 1977 whilst hitchhiking. Now, it was the same setup as the girls from 1971, like everything that happened to them had happened to Therese and Mary, um, but they'd managed to escape. 
Now, her description sounded just like their prime suspect. And when the police interviewed her and showed her photographs, she immediately selected Ivan Malat from the, the photos that okay. she was shown. So in February of 1994, surveillance of Ivan and his family and the family homes is commenced by the police. So like I said earlier, this is international news everywhere. The whole country, the whole world knows about the backpacker murders. And because this story is running all around the world, in Birmingham, England, a young man called Paul Onions sees the story and it triggers a horrible memory for him from the previous year when he'd been travelling through Australia. Pause to explain why you're giggling. Paul Onions. Um, yeah, funny name, but also... <laughs> um, one of my friends was married to someone with the surname Onions. Oh, it is funny. wasn't Paul, was it? No. <laughs> okay. Well, in November of 1993, um, and so obviously this was, they were finding the bodies at this time. Um, Paul had been hitchhiking from Liverpool Station towards Mildura. And he was at like, um, I've heard it referred to as a service station, like a news agent. He'd stopped to get a drink and he'd been offered a ride from a man calling himself Bill. Now, he accepted the lift and they started the journey. And he noted that Bill was quite tall and he had a Merv Hughes moustache. Merv Hughes is a famous Australian cricketer, but basically a big sort of... Like handlebar moustache. Yeah, kind of. A very noticeable moustache. Yeah. Um, And he said that Bill had told him that he was of Yugoslav descent, that he was divorced. He worked for the, the road traffic agency. Um, but Bill began to unsettle Paul on the journey due to some sort of racist remarks that he was making and a bit of a dodgy story about needing to pull over. So basically, Bill had said, oh, I'm just going to pull over because we need to get some like cassettes out of the boot. And Paul's thinking there's like at least 10 cassettes here. You don't need to pull over the cassettes. Right. Like, what the heck's going on? So on a quiet area just off the Hume Highway, Bill stopped the car, pulled out a revolver and some rope and, you know, Paul made a split second decision to make a run for it and it would more than likely be the best decision that he ever made. Wow. So he bursts out of the car and he zigzags away from Bill as fast as he can. But Bill's after him and he actually shoots at him um, and he's screaming and shouting at him along this busy highway. Now another motorist um, is flagged down by Paul. This is Joanne Berry from Canberra. And she gets Paul into the car and drives off and gets him out of the situation. And they immediately report the incident to the police. Um, and at the, at the time, both Paul and Joanne give like quite a, an accurate description of the attacker. But it's classed as an attempted robbery with a firearm. It's not like classed as an attempted kidnapping or anything yeah. like that. And so Paul goes back to the UK and just considers himself very lucky to have survived the experience. But then when he starts seeing the stories, he's like, hang on a minute, this sounds like maybe I was a potential victim of this person. So Paul contacts the Australian police and he retells them his story. And this time the police don't think it was a standard robbery by any means. They believe that he may have been the one that got away. So in May of 1994, Paul is flown back to Australia and he's shown multiple photographs of men with this particular type of moustache and with like facial hair. And Paul identifies Ivan Malat every single time as the man who called himself Bill. And I think it's actually on four separate occasions. Like, he, they mix him into yeah. different pictures, but all with the same facial hair. And every single time, Paul picks out Ivan Malat. So, the police have got the breakthrough that they're waiting for. And Ivan Malat is arrested on May the 22nd, 1994, with the armed hold-up of Paul Onions. So, after arresting him police are able to search his property and in the property they find loads of weapons including a rifle and even some rifle parts that are hidden in a wall cavity and they also find um, the 22 caliber Ruger which is um, the type of weapon that was used 
in the murders, the backpacker murders, as well as the like weapons, they also find clothing, tents, sleeping bags, cameras, and various other items that belong to the majority of the backpacking victims. God. Like this, he'd even given his girlfriend at the time, a girl called Shalinda Hughes, I believe, um, a Benetton sweater. And this particular sweater was worn by one of the victims. Um, and he'd taken a photograph of Shalinda wearing this Benetton jumper. Um, so it was kind of like there were souvenirs everywhere. Yeah, so we could always be reminded. Always. So searches were also completed of uh, Ivan Malak's family members and this revealed like more weapons and even more items belonging to the murdered backpackers. So Richard Malat, who's one of the youngest brothers, he was actually found to have um, items belonging to Caroline and Joanne in particular, um, as well as a couple of, you know, like a sleeping bag, um, tent poles, things like that. But to this day, um, he maintains that they were just given to him by Ivan, which would stack up. Like yeah. all the family have items that have been given to them by Ivan, which once belonged to backpackers. Um, and Richard also says that police have mistakenly identified some of these items as belonging to the victims. So, for example, a tent pole. How do the police know that this one tent pole belonged yeah. to? Um, so, on the 31st of May, 1994, Ivan Mart is charged with the seven backpacker mur murders and he is committed for trial on December the 12th of 1994. The Supreme Court trial starts on the 26th of March 1996 and in July of 1996, on the 27th of July, he is found guilty of the seven murders and one offence of kidnapping and is sentenced to seven life sentences with no possibility of parole. So as well as the ballistic evidence and the belongings of the victims, um, the case relied heavily on Karen Malat, his ex-wife, because she recalled four different trips to Belanglo State Forest with Ivan in 1983. And on two occasions, like he'd gone to shoot kangaroos and he'd like finished one of them off by cutting its throat. Like he just did, like used to take it to the, the forest and just do horrible things. Um, and then she'd said the other two times they'd just driven around the area and they'd had picnic in certain spots. Um, so Karen was in witness protection. Like, that's how wow. bad this was for her. Um, so she gives testimony. And, of course, Paul Onion's testimony is very important in putting him away. So that's pretty much the case. But I just wanted to briefly talk about Ivan Malat and his motive, like motivation. Yeah. So, we've probably brushed on it before, but it's like he enjoyed the control of these kills. Like, it's a sadistic aggression. Like, he, to me, it's like he, he feeds off his victim's fear. Um, and perhaps there's, like, a sexual element to that. You know, that maybe a grotesque sexual desire, which can only be sated by this control and ultimately the death of his victim. Yeah. Um, I've touched on it before. I do feel like the majority of his crimes seem to be linked to the events in his life and the women in his life. Like, again, it's that control element. So when his sister dies um, and Marilyn leaves him, he attacks the two girls. Um, you know, is it... I wonder, is it more to... Was there more to the relationship with his younger sister? You know, with yeah, the possibly. well, we know it's something that yeah, with the implication with his other sister Shirley, um, you know, or is it just because his girlfriend leaves him? I, I don't know, but Karen, like his ex-wife, she actually does believe that, just like that theory to a point that you know milestones in his life directly related to the women in his life, then started or caused him to have these murderous impulses and um, she believes that to a point where she actually blames herself for the backpacker murders oh, because horrible. these happened like pretty much after she divorced him that's when it, it massively escalated mm. um I, I don't think that karen should blame herself at all i think no, not at all you know but there are loads of other disappearances 
missing persons and unsolved murders that can be attributed to Ivan Millar. And I watched a really good documentary recently that sort of tallies that, that timeline even more with other instances or other victims or potential yeah. victims that really pads out that theory. Um, <clears throat> like it puts forward a number of viable victims that would fit neatly into that timeline. And I think it's extremely valid to say that there are potentially a lot more victims that we don't know about. So it's something to think about. What would you think? Do you think there are more victims? Yeah, definitely. That's such a shame that um, that maybe there isn't as much like police action looking into that. Or is there? Yeah, I think there's probably like ourselves, I think the police are quite happy that Ivan was put away. Yeah, he's away now. Um, gaining evidence to support you know historical cases from way back into the 70s is probably not that straightforward but I know that there are individual investigators that are working on um, proving that Ivan was responsible for their family members death. Do you know if Ivan says he only committed those seven? No Ivan is a twat from okay. start to finish um, he goes he goes to prison um, and in prison he immediately appeals he blames throughout the case he blames it on other members of his family never takes responsibility uh, right. for any of the victims he appeals his uh, court sentence uh, and in 1998 is dismissed like it's found that he had a perfectly fair trial um, he He's just a bit of a knob, basically, whilst he's in prison. Even though the evidence is massively stacked against him and it's proven he's had a fair trial, he just never really accepts it or like owns up to it. And whilst he's in prison, he enjoys sort of a level of notoriety. So he's getting written to by loads of young women who are... Oh, yeah, my God. I'm not sure. They're the worst. Aren't they just? Um, he... In 2001, he self-harms. He starts swallowing razor blades, staples, and other metal objects. Um, and in 2009, in January 2009, he actually cuts his little finger off with a plastic knife um, because he wants a PlayStation in his cell. Yeah, he's, he's just not... There's nothing nice about this guy at all um, I was wondering if he was going to be the type to go to prison and then claim that he killed hundreds because um, that always seems to be something that happens yeah I find it a bit strange personally I do I feel like he he would I would think he would be more the type of person that would be I've killed hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, like, I thought he seemed like the kind of twat that was likely to do that. That's that's the only thing the that bothers variety. me about this case, is that's part of the thing that bothers me. Is it another element of control? Yeah. It's you know, that it is. It's like him. The Moore's murders. And yeah. Yeah, it's just him trying yeah. to get control, isn't it? It is. Um, there are a couple of little things I wanted to add. Um, so... Malat was diagnosed with um, terminal esophageal cancer in 2019. He died from uh, esophagus and, stum and stomach cancer uh, within the hospital wing at Long Bay Correctional Centre at uh, the age of 74 on October the 27th, 2019. So good. Yeah. I'm glad he's no longer with us. Um, however, the legacy of Malat and possibly the legacy of Belanglo Forest becomes further twisted because in November of 2010, Ivan Malat's nephew, Matthew Malat, he actually lured a school friend named David Octoloni to Belanglo Forest with the promise of um, like weed and drink because it was David's birthday. Um, so David went along with a couple of other friends and Matthew proceeded to murder him with an axe and another friend videoed it all. So Matthew Malat was later sentenced to 43 years in jail. So as I say, 
I'm not sure it's the forest as such, although there have been many other bodies found in the forest that weren't related to Ivan Millar. But I feel like it is possibly the legacy of part of the Millar family. Yeah. They're torn now between a few of the siblings that will talk about Ivan and the majority who won't. Like, yeah. they will not discuss it and they still believe that he's innocent to this day. I don't. No, I don't. The only thing that I do want to speak about before we finish this is that there is still speculation to this day that he wasn't the only killer. Um, Most people believe that it was one of his brothers, but there is a theory that was also um, put out there by Ivan's defence solicitor from back in the day, um, who said that he believes that it could have been his sister Shirley. So the one that he had the alleged incestual affair with, who who Ivan also lived with for some time, that she was the one who accompanied and possibly assisted with these murders. So, Danny, what do you think? Do you think he acted alone? I'm on the fence. I wouldn't be surprised if there was someone else there and I would hazard a guess that it was a member of his family sister brother to me is it doesn't yeah. really matter um as in like it could, it could be either but what we said earlier on about the ferocity of the violence and that there was often two victims mm. makes me slightly lean towards that perhaps there was an accomplice yeah I'm much the same. I find myself very much on the fence about it. I 100% think that he was the ringleader of it because yeah. we know he had acted alone on occasions. Mm. Um, the rape, the yeah. uh, onions. He definitely did act alone, but whether on some occasions he did have someone with him, just very judgmental. But the type of family he comes from, it would not surprise me. No, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of speculation about There's a lot of talk about potentially being two killers. I do completely agree Ivan was the ringleader. The only thing for me that... The only other option I can think of is that rather than there being two people, were the two personalities. So he from what from those survivors, he's always on his own yeah. when he picks these people up. There could have been somebody waiting in a specific area of the forest that he would meet up with. That's an option. But what gets me is, like you said, the ferocity of the attacks, the cigarette butts and the drink that were found at the, like around the campfires. Ivan doesn't drink and he doesn't smoke. But is that Ivan's other personality? Yeah. So there's the one side that's very structured, clean, very OCD... Um, everything has to be just so but then when he commits these murders is that Ivan the Terrible like the second personality and this is the person that does these horrific things and drinks and smokes whilst he's doing it like that's my feeling of it somehow I just find it I think people say also there's always two people he was like one person against two fear is a great motivator yeah if there were if me and you were in a car for example and someone pulled a gun i'd probably do exactly what they were asking me to because i would be so scared you know it's one of those isn't it i guess you know we will never know so so there you go so that's the case of ivan malat um, and his victims i'm not going to say i hope you enjoyed that um but i hope you found it interesting yeah definitely it's good to learn more about him actually because i hadn't hadn't heard in depth about especially about him and his family and where he came from yeah there's an excellent book um called sins of the brother which and i will put all the um as well as some excellent documentaries so i will put them all in the sources for you but speaking of um, interesting cases this week there's been quite a lot of interesting developments in a few cases as well hasn't there so many yeah i feel like it's been um yeah hard to keep on top of really so there's been developments in the andrew gaston case yeah um, andrew gaston went missing in 2007 and 
for a long time there hasn't been much um, much actually released to the public domain about it it has gone quite quiet quite cold and this week it has been all over the media again and there's been some arrests made relating to his case although the details of which are obviously not available Mm. it's like you say though it's good to see that there's been some movement and some development so much so as you know that's the case I am quite um, passionate about maybe seems like the wrong words but it's it's something that has always haunted me I remember when he went missing it's someone that I think of a lot and I seem to always see missing posters of him when I'm in big cities I know I've seen them in Manchester and I know I've seen them in London so he's always on the the forefront of my mind so I'm glad that there's something happening for Andrew and for his family absolutely yeah well I mean we'll if we hear any more we'll keep you updated as usual Um, great things are going on behind the scenes in order to get justice absolutely but also the Alps murders yeah the Al Hillies Al Hillies yeah Yeah, another development Um, yeah again you know maybe this year is going to be the year where um, loads of cases get solved if you're interested in the Al Hilly murders or Andrew Gosden we have covered them in previous episodes we have indeed so if you haven't listened please go ahead and do so okay perfect and next week we will be back with some minis and yeah we hope that you will be there listening to us absolutely until then keep safe Yeah, have Um, a good week. Yeah, see you soon. Bye. Bye.